Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. God, I keep yawning. I can't stop yawning. <laughs> it would not be, uh, I think, good to open the show with me with my mouth agape. Uh, anyway, hi, how you doing? Uh, it is uh, nearing the end of July. It's the 25th. How'd that happen? And uh, and uh, here we are again. So, I saw a good movie yesterday. Uh, you know, the good movies now are generally little independent movies where you don't have violence. There's no violence. There's no sex. There's no car chases. There's not even a hell of a lot of dialogue. (laughs) But it's wonderful. And it's called Leave No Trace. Um, It's it's, uh, a woman director whose name escapes me, uh, who also did a highly acclaimed uh, independent film some years back called called I had it just a minute ago. (laughs) Called damn, about some real down and out. I think it's where we first got to know this marvelous actress, uh, Jennifer Lor- Deborah Granick is the is the director, and I don't know why the hell I'm not th- thinking of uh, that initial movie of hers. At least when we came to, um, is it is there bones in the title? Yeah. Um, God, hello and welcome to watch the doddering old lady try to remember names. Winter's bone. All right. Anyway, um, I really recommend it if you're, uh, you know, a thoughtful human being. I I don't see how you wouldn't like it. Very powerful, wonderful movie. Um, I won't tell you much. It's about a father and a daughter, teenage daughter, (coughs) living off the grid, essentially homeless but uh, really smart about making it, just living in a forest. And the love between them, the uh, their grit, his difficulties, um, obviously a result of post-traumatic stress syndrome in, uh, in some war. I'm going to assume Afghanistan. And uh, really, really, just beautifully done. (laughs) I don't think there's a false note in it. So um, I do recommend it. I never even heard of it, and I I felt like a movie yesterday. I felt like a scape, you know. Uh, And this uh, this was just what the doctor ordered. Anyway, so there's that. 
I, I want to make note, although I'm fearful of doing so, because it seems like every time I do, it's a curse. But I do want to note something I'm sure you've noted, which is the amazing uh, Pittsburgh Pirates at the moment. Wow. It's, I, I mean, it's like they're on fire. I, it, it's amazing. Uh, what are we? What are they at now? Twelve games in a row, and they're not just winning by a little. I mean, they're just decimating uh, the competition. I mean, just how the hell? Anyway, it's fun when it's happening, isn't it? And I'm happy for them. I felt real sorry for the players. When I say them, I'm never talking about the management. I mean, I, I like Clint Hurdle, but I'm not talking about nothing the owner and the management, mostly the owner, I guess. But I, I feel for the players, and I'm happy for them. So, in my continuing efforts to figure out how to keep my head and um, keep my health uh, while living in this unreal, real world, uh, I have a few things here that I want to throw out. One is uh, courtesy of uh, one of you, Dorothea, and I thank you. Uh, these are suggestions from uh, former Labor Secretary Robert Reich. He was Labor Secretary under Bill Clinton. And uh, his suggestions uh, for us all. I don't necessarily agree with all of them, but I don't have a violent disagreement with any. And I think some are really, really good. He says, number one, do not use the president's surname. I suppose that's just because he so infuses everything that those five letters um, that maybe it's, it's uh, best to uh, not say it even. Uh, but that, I don't think that's why. And also, it would, he loves it being said. But he says to refer to this always as the uh, GOP administration. You know, make sure the Republicans get targeted. And um, but then he says it's really not an administration. Remember, it's a regime, and he is not acting alone. So. Yeah, I think those things are, and, and this is how, like, when you're talking to people about what's happening, don't say his damn name, call it a regime, pin it on the Republicans, the enablers, and he says, don't waste your time arguing with people who support him. It's just totally a waste of time. It doesn't work. And here's a good one that we forget. Focus on his policies. Focus on what he's doing and not his mental state, not his orangeness. And here's the one where we always stumble. Keep the message positive. And the reason Reich says is because the people who support this regime and the regime itself want Americans to keep a high level of anger and fear 
because that is the soil that they grow their dark policies in. Don't add to it. Uh, and here's another one we don't do too well on. At least I don't. He says, no more helpless or hopeless talk. I mean, that goes without saying. I mean, you cannot enlist people uh, in the good fight if you're self-mired in depression and hopelessness, right? So, positive message, focus on policies, don't sound like uh, this is some insurmountable uh, thing, uh, and uh, and also, out of the blue, he says, support the arts and artists, which I find interesting, very interesting, and I agree completely, because the other side does not. There is no art on the other side. Um, and arts and artists in times like these are always on the side of resistance. Even if I don't like that term. And then another very important thing, he says, make sure you're not spreading fake news. Don't be sending stuff on until you have checked it out. We all make the mistake. Let's really try not to make it very often. And his, uh, his big one is take care of yourself, which is what I was ranting about um, yesterday. I mean, you're no good in the battle if... Uh, if you're depressed and despairing and, you know, and emotionally distraught, you have to take care of yourself. Okay, so I think those are all really great. And I thank you for that. And on that po positive note, um, I wanted to share another little list that uh, someone who wrote to the New York Times came up with. I really liked. And this goes back to what I was talking about yesterday about uh, about tarring everybody who's a blue-collar worker or who's an angry white male as consequently then, of course, being a regime supporter. It's not... It's, it's stupid. It's untrue. And... A woman named Ann Diamond um, wrote this to the New York Times. And it's really, I mean, th this is a way to start a conversation maybe. Not again, to, this is for people who are wavering. Believe it or not, there are still people in the middle <laughs> in this most partisan of times. There are and where did I see uh, the latest uh, poll, the latest uh, Wall Street NBC poll, says, 
What is it? Nine percent. I, I, but I find that amazing. I mean, that nine percent of all voters say they are neutral about Trump. I mean, it amazes me that anybody would not be either uh or mm. I mean, it just amazes me. But so there's a good. It's not a you know. It's, single digit but it's still there are people out there so if you're talking to those folks it's really good to start with things that we all can agree on and this Ann Diamond came up with a list and she said it seems to me that this list which incorpor incorporates ideas that under any normal administration would seem obvious it's sort of like bedrock values that don't we all agree to this? Okay, statement number one. We deserve a president who tells the truth. Can we all agree with that? I don't know about the deserve part, because I think we got what we deserved. Um, but we can all agree that we would like a president speaks the truth and her second statement that she thinks anyone would agree with is cabinet secretaries should be advocates for their agency <laughs> uh, now obviously that'll turn a lot of uh, Republicans off because as I've always said, Republicans always put the exact opposite of advocates uh, into cabinet offices. They put people who will destroy the very office that they have, um, that they are now leading. So, but if we're not living in an upside down world, I think we should all be able to agree that you would appoint someone who cares about the environment as the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, somebody who uh, cares about workers to be the head of the Department of Labor, somebody committed to public education who, you know, is the education secretary. Hey, you get my point. And she said, uh, here's another one, Americans want clean air and water and, and Americans believe in climate change. I mean, this is, yeah, it's true. The vast majority of Americans believe in climate change and you tell me, is there anybody you know who doesn't want clean air and clean water? Okay. Every citizen should be encouraged to vote. We agree on that. You know, it's interesting because obviously this list uh, is standing in stark contrast to the Republican agenda. But I think she lays it out pretty, pretty well. No child should go to bed hungry. Canada and Mexico are not our enemies. Russia is not our friend. These are statements that just two, three years ago would not be, cons I mean, you'd say, well, yeah, the sky is blue, one and one is two, what are you even talking about here? 
The press is not the enemy. Children belong with their parents. Okay, so she says, if we can agree on these things, Americans should be voting in record numbers, and they should be voting in record numbers clearly for Democrats. Because supporters of the Republican Party now clearly don't uh, agree with this stuff or people who support this president. So, whatever, there's that. <clears throat> I got two quotes I wanted to share with you. One is from a guy I always made fun of, Hubert Humphrey. Um, I just didn't like his looks. Isn't that awful? How And it's true of human bias that if somebody just looks away, in a way, their, their, their face you don't like for whatever reason. It wasn't his fault. but And then, of course, you know, unfortunately, he was this sort of happy-go-lucky um, I just didn't like him, and it was at a point in my life where I was filled with rage, and he was not a rageful person in any way. And, of course, from a distance now, as I look back on him, I know he was a good man, pretty damn good guy. Hubert Humphrey, I believe he'd been the governor of Minnesota, and then he became the senator from Minnesota, and then he became Lyndon Johnson's vice president. He said this, It is always a risk to speak to the press. They are likely to report what you say. And uh, there it is. And invariably, when you know who says uh, fake news, he's talking about something he, in fact, said. And the, the, the other quote I love is from Harlan Ellison, and it is the two most, who recently died, right? Yeah. The two most common elements in the universe are hydrogen and stupidity. I want to talk a little bit about human nature here. Two stories that I think are sort of about human nature. Um, one has to do with a soccer player in Germany not that I'm into soccer. But uh, this is a guy, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, uh, uh, Mesut uh, Ozil. And he was uh, player of the year five times in Germany. He uh, was born in Germany uh, of Turkish parents who were immigrants to Germany, but he's full-blooded German. 
and he just quit the team. And he quit because he said he couldn't handle the bigotry and the hypocrisy. And he was getting a lot of bad press. Uh, first of all, the German team didn't uh, fare uh, very well in the in the recent uh, uh, championship series, and um, also he had a picture taken with the president of Turkey, who we know is a tyrannical jerk who's pretty much squelched the budding democracy in that land. More than budding, it was, uh, we thought, pretty much taken hold. Uh, and he had a picture taken with Erdogan. I don't know the circumstances. I don't know if it was showing that he supported Erdogan or it just showed that, you know, here's the president of Turkey, that's my parents' homeland and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, all hell broke loose. He was totally criticized, and he, he was just sick and tired of all of it. So he, he quit, said to hell with you all. And here is what he said. He said, and this is a statement I found to be so true, I'm sure. He said, I am a German when we win but I am an immigrant when we lose. And what he finally couldn't take anymore is being a hero to the German people, a representative of the German nation on the soccer team whenever they were winning. And if he had a bad season, he had a bad game, all of a sudden how quickly he goes from hero and representative of the German nation to a damn Turkish immigrant, essentially. Not one of us. He's not one of us. And he was just sick and tired of being buffeted between, oh, you wonderful German, you, to you slimy immigrant. <coughs> and this is, let's acknowledge this. This is something that human beings do all the time. You name uh, a family in which one of the parents hasn't said at some point, oh, speaking of the kids, when, <clears throat> when they do something right, they're your kids. When they do something wrong, they're my kids, right? Same kind of a thing. We always want to embrace winners, the good ones, something to be proud of. And when someone who's clearly connected to us does bad, there's an effort to sort of foist them off on, on somebody else. It's human nature. But in this case, you see the, the hurt and the pain that, that comes with this. Um, and here is um, a quote from Albert Einstein, who, of course, was an immigrant himself. In 1922, 
And this is before his uh, theory of relativity was accepted. In 1922, Albert Einstein said in Paris, while giving a speech there, quote, if my theory of relativity is proven successful, Germany will claim me as a German, and France will declare that I am a citizen of the world. Should my theory prove untrue, France will say that I am a German, and Germany will declare I am a Jew. Yeah, this we know. Human nature. It's what we do all the time. I mean, in Pittsburgh, I see it most, as much as I've seen it anywhere that I've ever lived, is that we, anyone who we have any claim on, you know, we, who's famous, we claim. Uh, and I did it just the other day by in my the obit of the day, uh, Adrian Cronauer, uh, and said he was born in Pittsburgh. He went to the University of Pittsburgh. He listened to Reed Cordick. And it, it's a way of claiming, yeah, ha having a little of whatever luster they have, uh, you know, somehow rub off on us that somehow we are basking in the same glow. Oh, yeah, Adrian Cronauer knew him well. That kind of a thing. But the minute, yeah, this person who you want to claim does something horrible or you're ashamed of or embarrassed by or you don't like, oh, how quickly, if possible, they can be cast out. Human nature. Um, It was noted, I mean, th this same article where I saw this also noted how, you know, the French team winning the soccer, winning the World Cup, uh, if you'd shown anyone a picture of the team, you would say, oh, wow, what African team won? Because <laughs> it's just, it looked, with the exception of one or two, just solid Africans. Which is why uh, uh, Trevor Noah uh, did say African wa Africa apparently won the World Cup, to which the French took great umbrage. But, I mean, when you think of France, you don't think of all these black Africans. Now, they will uh, be French heroes, right? They represent France. until they don't, until you see that most immigrants, most blacks in France mm, don't live in the better neighborhoods, uh, don't get ahead, like, you know what I mean? But, oh, boy, that's our team. <laughs> Just saying. 
Here's another thing I thought of. I'm so happy that those boys in Thailand lived. It sure didn't seem like they would. And then they did. And it was a real feel-good story for a world that really wanted one. And I just want to say that I so fear for them again. And my fear now, uh, I feel, is, is well-placed. Because the minute they became this huge story, uh, their lives changed dramatically, as we know. I mean, they've now all, with the exception of one who was Christian, have, you know, done this, are doing this novice monk uh, thing, which is a really a lovely a lovely thing to do. What a wonderful Buddhist tradition. Um, it's a way uh, to signify an attempt to repay a debt, to spend whatever, 10 days, two weeks, whatever, in prayer, contemplation, charitable work, at, shaved head, um, as a monk, to honor somebody to repay a debt. And of course, they have a huge debt, which they could never really repay. But they are doing this because of the death of the Thai Navy SEAL, one of the rescuers, um, and the only person who did die. What's a lovely thing they're doing? But as they were marching to the monastery the other day, heads bowed, trying to do this thing, the streets were lined with screaming fans. So much so that one of the monks who was a leader had to get on a... Um, loudspeaker, and say, it is enough. This is a somber ritual. Can we have some respect? So what I want to say is these boys now are in a three-ring circus. And just because they've been rescued does not alter the fact that they have become players in a three-ring circus, and their lives will never be the same. They will be, after their stay in the monastery, let loose in a world that will want to eat them alive. Because that's the world we live in. There will be people who want to be near them, befriend them, buy them, because for the same reason before. They are now celebrities. They have luster, and people want to bathe in the glow, to be close. There will be people 
dangling lots of money in front of them for books, for movies, for endorsements, for this, for that. Oh, people will come bearing gifts. And these are boys from poor families, some of them stateless. They don't have a chance with the vultures that are going to be circling them now. We wanted them rescued. Be careful what you wish for because we rescued them and now I am telling you because I know I've lived long enough to see it happen over and over and over again. They will be eaten alive. I can only hope that some of them are able to resist, are able to maintain. Their kids are able to somehow maintain a real life. Will somehow be able to control the maelstrom they find themselves in. I fear for them. is what I wanted to say. Milton says, your story of the German soccer player reminds me of the first lesson I ever learned about race and sportsmanship. When I was in second grade, the Steelers were at the height of their success as a Super Bowl winning powerhouse. I noticed then that whenever Franco Harris had a great game, he was the leader of Franco's Italian <laughs> army. When he gained less than 100 yards or gave up a fumble at a crucial point, Franco was a lazy N-word who was worthless and should be traded. Huh. I learned very early in life that when it comes to race, Love and adulation are movable feasts. Sadly, no more true than in my beloved hometown. And Margaret says, you know, Tiger Woods had the same kind of problem as well. He was our hero when he was on top. And then he wasn't. So. Oh, um, trying to keep my Twitter under some control. But I wanted to just, because somebody did tweet something. It's an Orwell quote. It'd be George. It is a quote from uh, his uh, rather well-known book, 1984, which he wrote well before 1984 when he assumed this horrible future we could be heading into. And 
he said this in 1984 about the ruling party. The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. Reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. If you see it, if you hear it, that doesn't matter. Listen to what we tell you. And Orwell says this was the final, most essential command in his nightmare dystopia. Right? I want to quote the President of the United States from yesterday. Stick with us. Don't believe the crap you see from these people, pointing to the reporters, the fake news. What you are seeing and what you are reading is not what's happening. What you are seeing and what you are reading is not happening. That's Donald Trump. And here's George Orwell. Reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. That was the final, most essential command. Now, yesterday, uh, how did this come up? Uh, oh, speaking with Clarence, uh, we talked about the... Uh, the piece that was written by a Silicon Valley gazillionaire uh, in which he warned his fellow gazillionaires that the pitchforks are coming. And I want to thank Milton for sending me uh, the article, which I, I reread last night. And, yep, that's the one I read. And he, he the guy's name is, is Nick Hanauer, and he uh, he wrote it as a memo uh, to quote my fellow zillionaires. You know, yesterday before we re remembered who this guy was, I think I said zillionaires or gazillionaires, and that's what he does too. Memo to my fellow zillionaires. And if I may. Can I read some of it to you? Because I think it, it, it's, it's really good. And as we said uh, yesterday, he also has done a, a TED Talk. Uh, for, I, I mean, I'm not going to do the whole thing. It's pretty long. Uh, first of all, he, he represents himself to his fellow zillionaires, whether they know him or not, as one of the 0.01%. And he says, in a proud and unapologetic capitalist. And then he gives of his bona fides. Is that how it's pronounced? I have founded, co-founded, and funded more than 30 companies. From itsy-bitsy ones like the nightclub I started in my 20s to giant ones like Amazon. 
Realtor.com, for which I was the first non-family investor. I founded uh, an internet advertising company that was sold to Microsoft in 2007 for $6.4 billion in cash. I own a bank. I tell you all this, he says to his fellow zillionaires, to demonstrate that in many ways I'm no different from you. Like you, I have been rewarded obscenely for my success with a life that the other 99.99% of Americans can't even imagine. In 92, I was selling pillows to retail stores across the country. And the internet was some clunky kind of novelty that you hooked up to with a loud squawk. But I saw pretty quickly, even back then, that many of my pillow-buying customers, the big department store chains, were already doomed. I knew that as soon as that internet thing became fast and trustworthy enough. And I felt that time was not far off, that people were going to shop online like crazy. Realizing that, seeing over the horizon a little faster than the next guy was the strategic part of my success, the lucky part was that I had a friend named Jeff Bezos. Bezos, I guess is how he pronounces it. So I helped underwrite his tiny startup internet bookseller. And now I own a very large yacht. But let's speak frankly to each other, he says to the zillionaires. I'm not the smartest guy you ever met, or the hardest working. I was a mediocre student. I'm not technical at all. I can't write a word of code. What sets me apart is a tolerance for risk and an intuition about what will happen in the future. Seeing where things are headed is the essence of entrepreneurship. And what do I see in our future now? I see pitchforks. I almost said I see dead people. <laughs> I see pitchforks. And then he goes on to say, hey, look, guys, look, guys. The divide now between us and the have-nots is getting worse, and it's getting worse really, really fast. And then he throws some statistics at them. And then he says this, but the problem isn't that we have inequality. Some inequality is intrinsic to any high-functioning capitalist economy. The problem is that inequality is at historically high levels and getting worse every day. Our country is rapidly becoming less a capitalist society and more a feudal 
society. And unless our policies change dramatically, the middle class will just disappear. And we will be back to late 18th century France before the revolution. And so I have a message for my fellow filthy rich, for all of us who live in our gated bubble worlds. Wake up. It ain't going to last. Now remember, this is a guy who says why I'm as rich as I am is I have an ability to see beyond the horizon. And he, he sees pitchforks. He says no society can sustain this kind of rising inequality. In fact, there is no example in human history where wealth accumulated like this and the pitchforks didn't eventually come out. You show me a highly unequal society and I will show you a police state or an uprising. There are no counterexamples, none. So it's not if, it's when. Okay, I want to... Um, it goes on in saying that we've got to we got to share some stuff here. We got to you know whatever. But I I think the first time I read this, I sort of skipped over that last sentence. I just the last paragraph I I read because I want to um, point something out that sort of chilled my blood when I reread this last night. He points out that throughout human history, if you get this level of, of wealth inequality, that there are only two things that can happen. Pitchforks or a police state. And you know... This, the title of this was always the pitchforks are coming. The title was never the police state is coming. And I want to suggest that the powerful are standing behind the current president because it appears he is willing to institute essentially a police state and consequently they'd be able to keep their wealth and there wouldn't be pitchforks. Because when I can lift a quote from 1984 and it totally is represented in a quote in the paper today from a presidential speech yesterday. I, 
I think that it's not the pitchforks <laughs> the way we are heading. I think it's the police state. And I think this guy figures it's the pitchforks too and in that regard I think he might be wrong. Anyway, uh, his memo to his fellow zillionaires had absolutely no impact at all on them. Bezos got richer, greedier, put more family businesses out of out of business. We see the power now of Facebook, of Google, and how it can be used by police states. So I, I just want to say, I thought, as I reread that, that it was very, very sobering. I can't pretend to know if, uh, if what he is saying is correct historically that there are only two outcomes when a society becomes as unequal as ours is. The people either rise up or the government, which represents the lords, because he says we're in a feudal society right now, or the government, which represents the lords, clamps down. That's the only possibilities. Rise up or clamp down. The bottom rises or the top clamps down. That's what he says is the only historic, historical possibilities. And um, I find that... Um, sobering so I'm just throwing it out there for you uh, back to that um, poll I previously mentioned the Wall Street Journal NBC News poll it, it really is remarkable um, the solid support that Trump has of his own party members. Just incredible. 88% of people who say I'm a Republican. 88% are behind him every bit of the way. Um, and the number who say they strongly approve, I mean the highest value, is 30%. 30%. Okay, so 30% absolutely unmovable. 
80, and that's all Americans, 80%, excuse me, 88% of all Republicans. And that tells us that we are not a, in any way, not that this is news, a uh, united states. Not at all. We are really divided. The good news is that 30% or... 30% of all Americans strongly approving and add another, you know, maybe gets up to close to 40 of strongly and just approving. The fact is, is that is a minority. The problem is, is that our side doesn't hold the other 60%. As I said to you earlier, there's a 9%. Those are the guys. Those 9% who must be brain dead, I cannot for the life of me figure out how you wouldn't have an opinion either way. (laughs) But there they are, and those are the guys that we got to win over. Otherwise, it's really too close for comfort, this division. It's way too close. And I'll read you just one other little paragraph here from, it says the core Trump support group combines two groups, one of which are people who are drawn to him for economic reasons. People who totally believe that the global economy and all the new rules it brings with it have stacked the deck against them. Okay, now I will argue that in that regard I think they're they're correct. (laughs) Uh, The global economy has harmed uh, millions upon millions upon millions of American workers because we can't compete with all the people in the world willing to work for a lot less. So they say Trump's support comes from people like that who Democrats, if they learn how to package their message, should be able to get to and then there's the other group that I think you can't get to because in many respects we don't want them and that's the people who are drawn to Trump for cultural uh, reasons Uh, for people who hate the elites think immigrants are not good and and that People like me are hijacking uh, traditional values and stuff like that. Those people we, are, we cannot reach. But the people who he managed to bamboozle, who see themselves losing out in this global economy, those are people that Democrats should definitely reach. We have a caller. Hello. Hello. Hi. I don't like to call two days in a row. But That's okay, Clint. Because, um, 
the 88 percent, is that the number you gave that, you know. Of Republicans, of sell, people who say, I am a Republican, 88 percent of them. Totally. Here's the good news on that. Here's the good news on that. What I've read a couple of times is that people who call themselves Republicans is, really, is diminishing. Is really diminishing. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And, that, and that, that, that's where the, um, where, where it sounds worse than what it actually is. So it's, a, it's 88% yeah. of an already minority of Americans, and it's 88% of a diminishing minority. Exactly. Right. Who say, you know, who say they support Trump. Right. And I think the word, did you say strongly supports Trump? Um, no, strong, or strongly, strongly support. If you ask support. all Americans, and now we're getting away from the party, strongly support all Americans, it's uh, 30%. See, that's, that's one of those questions, too. You know, there could be people who support Trump, but they don't strongly support Trump. You know what I mean? That, that's one of those questions where that's why I hate to take polls mm -hmm. when they call me because of the way they phrase the question. Right. I would answer, yeah, you know, so. But I, I can't, I mean, Trump. anybody who would say they support him. I don't get it. I, I can't even, I, you know, imagine. That's when I go back. I don't ask why, I ask how. <laughs> yeah. How do these people come to this con this, this conclusion? And yeah. normally they're, um, and, and it's, um, they're fearful for some reason. It could be, you know, some black kid beat them up in high school. Who the hell <laughs> to, knows? You know, that, 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 that got to that, that point. Or, you know, and I think the biggest thing, of course, is fear. You know, fear. Absolutely. And that's when I, when people say, well, I said, it's that fear. And I said, well, you're tacitly making an admission uh, that you, you're, you're a white supremacist. <laughs> if you have a fear of losing because um, minorities, women, and all that kind of good stuff are making gains, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a tacit admission that you feel superior, that these people are getting something that they don't deserve. That's exactly right. Deserve it. That's yeah. exactly right. And... Um, yeah, so interesting that uh, Trump now, because uh, is is going to be uh, throwing money at uh, some of these people to keep them on board while his policies harm them, uh, just to tide them over till the you know the midterm elections. So he's using billions of our dollars to buy their continued loyalty. It's really something. Yeah, understand arguments for Democrats to use that right there as a um, as a, uh, a rallying cry or something yeah. like that yeah. to, to get these people back um, to, to get these people back you know that they, they were well, played <laughs> let's you know, that, um, yeah go ahead. So. let's hope let's hope I thank you Clarence I'm running out of time so I'm gonna have to go but thank okay. you thank you thank you bye, bye. just want to get two uh, emails in um, Brian says, you got capitalism, which makes very, very few, not which makes very few, very rich. That's what we got. I call it, he says, crapitalism, <laughs> where the workers who make these assholes rich get crapped on. The face of crapitalism is Mr. Bankruptcy himself, Donald Trump. Uh, Kathleen says, you, yours are excellent insights. The zillionaire's memo is absolutely on target. 
since our political scene has been in such hateful disarray, I've told anyone who will listen to remember the French Revolution. But now I think I was wrong. Americans and our leaders, as well as much of our press, appear to me to be brain dead, witless, dull. That's not a criticism, it's an observation. I can't imagine where a French Revolution would rise from. It's more likely that everyone will just submit to this inequality, go after whatever they can get, and live behind locked doors. Gee. Well, let's hope, uh, Kathleen, that that uh, is not the case. Uh, revolution can come from from the people. It really can. Enough of the people. And then politicians, fearful of the people, will jump on board. That's how these things happen, right? I would not despair that that is not a possibility. It just seems to me that right now the powers that be are clearly trying to go the other way to retain their wealth and their position, which is uh, clamp down police state, authoritarianism of a feudal society. So sharpen up your pitchforks, that's all I got to say. <laughs> and uh, thanks for thanks for being there, and uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.